Have you heard? 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 Welcome to Have You Heard. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. And Jack, we're kicking off this episode with one of my favorite activities. We're opening up the listener mailbag. I was sure you were going to say pickleball. (laughs) You know that my hostility to pickleball knows no bounds. It is like a voracious weed. It's taking over everything. (laughs) So no pickleball then, huh? Oh. Okay, so this correspondence recently arrived. This is a a review that somebody left us on on Apple Podcasts. Smart and relevant, five stars. This is one of my favorite pods. So smart and relevant. I wouldn't change a thing about it. Although I sometimes wonder how amazing this podcast would be with two incredibly informed, interesting, interested, engaging, and well-prepared hosts. Keep up the great work, Jennifer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jennifer, your the, your reviews that you're leaving for our show are getting really good, really sophisticated. I know, isn't it funny that the name up in the in the There's corner anonymous. said, yeah, it actually it accidentally said JCB twelve twenty. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jack, you did get some fan mail as well. Am I supposed to react to that? You you need to read it out, I think, before I react, because there's a chance you're tricking me. Well, we had a listener write asking if it would be possible to get a copy, an advanced copy of the book that you have coming out. Oh, right. Yes. Well, it's not going to be out for a while. Uh, this is a book that I've co-written with Ethan Hutt, uh, who has been on our show talking about one of the things that we write about in the book. Uh but that's all I'll say about that for now, because this is a show about something quite different. A man of mystery to the end. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of books, we are featuring a book on this episode of The Pod. There's a new book out called School's Choice, How Charter Schools Control Access and Shape Enrollment. It's by friend of the show, Kevin Wellner, and Wajma Mamandi. And Jack, even though the book is ostensibly about charter schools, I think what really spoke to us about it is that the lessons are so relevant to education in general as we sort of sit on this precipice where it seems like a fully private system is closer to being a reality than than I think a lot of people would have predicted even a few years ago. Yeah. One of the things that we have talked about previously is the sort of simplistic way that people often think about a fully privatized system. Uh, they imagine themselves to have lots of choices and that things will more or less be the same as they are now. It's just that private schools will be free. Um, and That simply isn't how things either work right now or will work in the future for a lot of reasons. Uh, You know, we've discussed things like the fact that the value of a voucher won't cover even a fraction of tuition at a lot of private schools. But there are all sorts of other issues to consider and which Wajma and Kevin take up in this book. So thinking about, you know, how do schools actively work to attract some kinds of families and keep other kinds of families away? What are some of the barriers that they can erect 
to maintain a particular kind of population at the school? What are the ways they can drive particular kinds of kids out of the school? What are the ways that they can send clear signals, this school is not for you? If we're concerned about maintaining a system that is open to all, accessible to all, that prioritizes equal treatment, and that at least has the possibility for bringing young people together across differences in identity, um, differences in family background, then we really need to think seriously about these sort of hard and soft push and pull factors that they identify in this book. Well, Jack, I think I speak for listeners everywhere when I say that at least for this episode, it seems like we have two well-prepared hosts. (laughs) (laughs) Well done. Well done, Jennifer. Now to the book, and more importantly, to our authors. Wajma Mamandi is a former public school teacher and a PhD candidate in education policy at the University of Colorado Boulder School of Education. Kevin Wellner is a professor there and the director of the National Education Policy Center. You may remember him from an episode we did last year about Biden's Secretary of Education, Miguel Cardona. Wajma and Kevin are the authors of a great new book called School's Choice. How Charter Schools Control Access and Shape Enrollment. While the topic is one that Kevin has been studying for quite some time, Wajma's interest came from something more personal, her experiences as a teacher in a district with education reform fever. Before I started the PhD program, I was a public school teacher in Washington, D.C., D.C. public school system. I taught for a couple of years under Michelle Ree and then who came after her. So my experience teaching in DC, I was there five years. We were restructured twice in five years. So everyone's fired, everyone's rehired. I mean, I just think every reform strategy that was popular at that time, I experienced in my school as a new teacher. In many ways, School's Choice is Wajma's efforts to make sense of her time teaching science at a big comprehensive high school in a part of D.C. that was undergoing rapid gentrification and significant charter school expansion. I taught in a school that was surrounded by at least eight to ten kind of smaller charter schools within a mile. I lived in the most, like the number one gentrifying zip code in America. So there's a lot of change happening I tell people that my neighborhood was becoming more white and more affluent every year, but I never taught a white student. There was never a white student enrolled in the large high school where I taught. So the students I started with at the beginning of the year were not the students I ended with, right? They're so, so we had a lot of students coming in and out, but I had charter school students come in all the time up to the very end of the year, um, every year. And I, and I remember, you know, they left the charter school for a lot of reasons. I always found it a little entertaining because they often would be my best new students. Right. And I was like, I just can't believe a school would not want you. What, what's happening? So I just, I, I guess I understood from that perspective of someone working in a school that took all students, how charter schools were functioning around me. Fortunately for our purposes, Kevin was in search of a doctoral student and the rest is history. So what is school's choice about? In a word, 
access. Washma and Kevin opted not to weigh in on that age-old debate about the relative quality of charter schools. Instead, looking at questions of access, especially barriers that make it hard for families to enroll their kids or to find out about the schools in the first place. We, in the book early on, make a case for why we focus on access. And we argue that, you know, whether a student can choose to enroll in a charter school really fundamentally depends on access and that we can't really understand all the other issues we hear about, the achievement comparisons, stratification, all those big charter school issues without understanding access. And that access is really at the heart of the, you know, debate about publicness of charter schools. Wajma and Kevin argue that our current incentive structures, with their emphasis on test scores, essentially reward schools that put up barriers. That means that schools that were supposed to be a solution to a public education system with plenty of its own barriers, say residency requirements, has ended up erecting new ones. In the U.S. today, charter schools exist within a choice ecosystem, and that ecosystem is shaped by incentives and disincentives. And this environment of incentives and disincentives shapes schools' approaches to access. What does this mean? To survive and thrive today, charter schools must compete. And they are successful in our system if they enroll a sufficient number of students. And when those students' outcomes and resource needs allow the school to attract more students every year, right? So that means students that have high test scores who are less costly to educate. The high test scores will attract more families. The high test scores will allow the school to keep operating under whatever authority they're under and so forth. And so what this does is creates really strong incentives for schools to attract and enroll students with high test scores, students who are fluent in English, have no expensive special needs. And then we spend the majority of the book kind of going through 13 access restricting practices that we organize in the order a parent or family would encounter them. So before, during, and after enrollment. So what does this look like in practice? It's time for a mini field trip to a state we talk about a lot on this program. That would be Arizona, home to one of the country's highest flying charter networks, BASIS. The schools provide a vivid example of what my co-host refers to as hard pushes and soft pulls, all those elements that charters can use to shape their enrollment. This is a network of elite college preparatory schools. They sound really impressive on paper. I think in 2018, the top five high schools in America, according to the U.S. News and World Report, were all basis schools. So in Arizona, students at basis are more likely to be white, less likely to qualify for free and reduced price lunch, less likely to have special needs, less likely to be English language learners. Why is this the case? The short version is that basis shapes access in a lot of ways by designing its schools for an appealing and being most accessible to kind of the most efficacious parents and high-achieving students. Arizona does not have any laws about charter schools providing transportation, so the network does not provide transportation. BASIS also declines to participate in free and reduced-price lunch programs, even though more than half of students in Arizona are eligible for free and reduced-price lunch. So academically speaking, BASIS really emphasizes a rigorous curriculum, uses testing and promotion retention at all levels, A spokesman was interviewed once and he said the schools are academically rigorous, any kid can go, but these schools aren't going to be for every kid just as Harvard and Princeton isn't for every kid. Basis is kind of a master of like the most effective way to have a school with high achieving students and the most effective way to have those top ranked schools is to enroll them. I don't think that you use the phrase hard and soft pulls and pushes, but that's 
one of the things that I found myself thinking about while reading the book. If you say, like, sorry, we don't offer special education services, that, that's, that's a pretty hard push away from the school as opposed to, you know, marketing yourself uh, as a school for high achievers, for instance. So that's going to that's gonna draw particular kinds of students. Now, maybe we're okay with that, or maybe we're not. And if we're not, uh, then, you know, is there anything that can be done about that, or is that baked in to any kind of choice-based system? I think it's, it's baked into choice-based systems that put choice as the, as the goal rather than as a means to a different sort of end. If your goal is, for example, to use choice to disentangle schools from housing segregation, which choice has a potential to do, and to create more integrated schools, then you set up a system of constrained choice, right? Where people rank the schools that they want, choose maybe their two or three favorite schools, and then those rankings are used as part of a larger system that is designed to create more integrated schools. Now, of course, the Supreme Court has issues with this, but it can be done by taking advantage of the fact that our, that our neighborhoods are segregated, so you could do it by zip code. There are similar ways that choice could be used to further other policy goals. If that's the way that choice is used, then it's not baked into the system. It's only baked in when we place the deregulation and the market elements above our larger policy goals. So if the barriers to access that our authors document are baked into these systems of choice, is there anything that can actually be done? Kevin says our current incentive structures are aligned to incentivize charters to act more like private schools, but it doesn't have to be that way. I think that one of the main themes that we want people to come away with from the book is that we have a choice with regard to charter schools about whether or not they'll tilt toward public or tilt toward private. Right. So this is the rules matter part, right? This, this gets to charter schools are statutorily created entities. We can create things called charter schools with a wide variety of different rules. We can decide which regulations still apply to them, which ones don't. We could ask them through our policy demands, we could ask them to be more public. We're now three decades into the great charter school experiment, and that question of whether the schools are public or private entities seems less clear than ever. Kevin says there's a reason for that. Anytime there's one of these debates, the one in California a couple of years ago is a good example of this when the laws were changed there. It's charter advocates saying, essentially, leave us alone, leave us deregulated, leave us to act freely within the marketplace basically leave us outside of the demands of public entities. And what happens then is that charter schools behave more and more like private schools. We haven't even discussed the issues, which are not really part of the focus of the book, but are extremely important. The issues around private profit-taking out of charter schools, the, the issues of people who run charter schools finding ways to get rich out of the process. All of these things are entangled with issues of access, of course, but the danger that I see of charter school expansion isn't that something that says, you know, Acme charter school above the doorway is a danger in and of itself. It's the ways that we have allowed charter schools to be uh, more and more private in so many important ways. Advocates of school choice suggest that the market is going to be more efficient than democratic politics. And usually I resist that argument, but it seems like maybe the market 
in this case, is helping us figure out what the correct quote-unquote price of education is. Because if schools don't open in particular areas or offer particular services, if they're not trying to attract particular kinds of kids, that's the market saying the per-pupil expenditure that we're going to get for this kid is not enough. They're actually giving us information there about what it would take to get them to educate that kid. So I would just love to hear either of you talk a little bit about what this really teaches us about what kinds of per-pupil expenditures would need to be attached to particular kids and communities in order to overcome those disincentives that keep charters from trying to attract them. So, Jack, I think that's an important point. For example, most states, in, certainly including our own here in Colorado, drastically underfund special education. And one of the things we saw throughout our research for the book is that while charter schools vary from school to school, and while many charter schools enroll students who, who technically have IEPs, a lot of research is showing that charter schools as a whole avoid students with special needs and particularly students with, with high incidence or more expensive special needs. So a school, charter or otherwise, that enrolls a student with special needs who requires substantial additional educational resources really has one or two choices. Either impose an IEP that lowballs the student's needs. The second option would be to pull funding and resources from the other students uh, in the school. Or as often happens, the school can and will do both of those things. So charter schools, of course, have a third option, which is to avoid enrolling those students in the, in the first place. And what you're saying is, hey, maybe that's a sign that the system isn't funded properly. And I, I agree. The market is indeed showing us that education isn't priced correctly. I hesitate to take that insight too far. We have much better approaches than market mechanisms to determine students' needs. You know, I want my daughter's needs to be assessed and res responded to by professional educators. Um, can see how that sort of a professional system, professionalized system works in places like Finland. We don't need to turn to the market to tell us these things. But I think what you're saying is, well, we have the market and it is telling us these things and we should pay attention. Now, if you've been paying close attention, then you've no doubt noticed a couple of things. One is that Jack's questions seem particularly energetic this episode. And two, our co-authors are frankly a bit down on charter schools. So what about all of those exceptional schools that don't engage in the sorts of practices we've been hearing about? That's a question that Wajma and Kevin put to school leaders and charter advocates. We asked them, well, what sort of practices are you seeing that, that address some of these issues? What are some charter schools doing? What are some authorizers doing? What are some districts doing? Essentially, that don't look at choice for choice's sake as a goal, right? That say, okay, well, how are we going to design this so that we're accomplishing larger goals? Or for, for a given charter school, how are you bucking the incentives? How are you pushing back against these outside pressures to increase, increase access, even if it's not necessarily going to serve you well in the system that's, that's in place because you, the person running the charter school, care? And we found really interesting examples of all these things. But our conclusion is that holding up exceptional schools in the end is just that. It's exceptions, right? It's exceptions to the general rule. And the general rule is determined by the way the system is set up. Um, so it's great to praise the exceptions, the exceptional schools, but it's better to change the system so that they aren't exceptions. 
back to Wajma, she mentioned at the start of our conversation that in many ways, school's choice was her effort to make sense of an education landscape that seemed to have completely transformed between the time she attended a public neighborhood school in Denver and when she became a teacher in Washington, D.C., I think I was blown away. I didn't understand how much things had changed in such a short amount of time. Uh, DC was kind of the center of it all as well. And the segregation was so, so extreme. It just wouldn't have existed unless charter schools existed, unless there was choice. There were the the black charter schools. There was the white schools in really simple ways, kind of identify schools I think for individual families, the choices be, were really important. I think that district schools had not served a lot of students for very, very long or had never served them, right? And so there, so there's this idea that this might be empowering, you know, for individuals or, or the promise of it seems like it's something that can, can really address the needs of families. But in a city like D.C., um, I just didn't see that happening. Fast forward to the present and those incentive structures that Wajma and Kevin document in School's Choice. Well, she says that she's come to understand that her students were on the losing end of them. There were so many levels of segregation. So we had students that, for whatever reason, weren't accepted into schools around or wouldn't even qualify for schools around them, right? That meant students that had a lot of housing insecurity in their lives. That meant students that were new to the country, That meant students who needed a lot of extra support. And I try to explain to people, it doesn't matter how much money you would have pumped into our school. By concentrating so much need in one place, it's really, really impossible to deal with. And that's what was happening. And I I don't think that my neighbors who are like lawyers and worked for nonprofits and who are liberal and progressives like really understood that 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 is what was happening. Traditional public schools in which neighborhood is the basis for enrollment have a very real challenge if we are concerned about racial and economic integration in the schools because our neighborhoods are segregated. Long ago on an early episode on this show, we talked with Richard Rothstein and he and I disagreed about this where he said, first you have to integrate neighborhoods. And I said, that's that's impossible um, for a lot of reasons. First you have to integrate schools. And we sort of went back and forth and most of it ended up on the cutting room floor. And if you then look at what right now is being proposed as an alternate vision, which is total privatization, I think that has the potential to make things even worse than neighborhood-based enrollment, uh, where people will just settle into their niches. Um, They'll self-select into schools that are even more homogenous, not just by race and class, but a variety of other things, religion, special interest, etc. And so choice does offer a kind of, I hate to use this phrase, third way there, where we can begin to think a little bit about ways that we might have public schools that attract different kinds of kids and different kinds of families, such that this aim of social and economic integration, which is good for kids in school and it's good for our society outside of school, might be realized. I would love if one or both of you would just talk to that a little bit about the potential of choice, which on the one hand could exacerbate existing challenges we have in terms of segregation, and that's what Wajma was just talking about, but which also does open up some opportunity to pursue this very worthwhile goal. There's a diverse charter school coalition, these intentionally diverse schools. In 2018, I think there was only 125 of them across the country. So what a small number, right? But these are schools that are, you know, using 
weighted lotteries, right? It's in their mission. It's the mission of the school is to create intentionally diverse institutions, which is wonderful, right? So, but I think that you're right. You know, there isn't, I don't read enough about the efforts of intentionally diverse schools or why it's really hard. You know, you have an intentionally diverse school for a few years and then gentrification takes over. And then what do you do then, right? When the neighborhood shifts, do you, like, how do you keep a school intentionally? How do you keep it, right? All these things. It opens up the opportunity, but there are these problems that are inherent within school choice that we have to deliberately address. When we distribute educational opportunities to children based on the efficacy of their parents or guardians, based on on the ability of parents or guardians to work the system, we're creating one of those classic rich get richer, poor get poorer systems. A child born to parents with more wealth, more formal uh, education, all those things already has enormous advantages and will already be much more likely to have rich opportunities to learn through resources in the household and in their wealthier community. The school system that then steps in with a school choice uh, mechanism like this, that allocates as a practical matter, allocates preferred educational opportunities to those same children, that's going to be punishing people who are already deprived of educational opportunities. So this is a textbook example of how we create opportunity gaps that drive our, our achievement gaps. Kevin says that he hopes that the book won't just raise awareness about these issues of access and gaming the system, but will make the case for change. If you have a system with a, with a set of rules that can be gamed to generate more resources to serve students' very real needs, you will game the system to do that. The other part of that, of course, is that if you can game the system so that you could abscond with money through real estate schemes, you'll also do that. Right? So there are all these different ways that charter school rules change the behavior of those people operating charter schools. And if we don't understand those ways that the system is being gamed, then we can't change those incentives. We can't change those rules. And a big part of what we're hoping for with this book is helping people to understand the 13 different ways that we identify that charter schools can and do shape access, shape their enrollment. Then we could decide, okay, well, how many of these are things that we're, that we're happy with? How many of them are things we're okay with? And how many of them really need to be changed? As for Wajma, she's been thinking a lot lately about what's changed since she left her teaching job in D.C. to study education policy. And she says that lately, it feels like the push to retain any element of publicness when it comes to schools has only gotten harder. You know, the anti-CRT kind of push, the anti-mask, there's just so much about we should have the choice. It's like a zero-sum game. I, I must have the choice or anything else is unacceptable, that it's kind of, I worry a little bit that everything is kind of in that space right now, that anything other than the choice to do is not acceptable. It's harder and harder, I think, to argue to a lot of people that it's in our best interest sometimes to not have a lot of choice, right? That like, what is this collective good that we need to think about? And how does individual choice sometimes butt heads with our greater collective good? That was Wajma Mamandi and her co-author, Kevin Wellner. They have a great new book out called School's Choice, How Charter Schools Control Access and Shape Enrollment. Definitely check it out. And Jack and I will be right back to talk about how the language of choice has consumed, well, 
everything. And we'll be revealing the topic of this episode's In the Weeds segment for our Patreon subscribers. Here's a hint. Patriotic education may be coming to a charter school near you. If this sounds intriguing, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash haveyouheardpodcast and become a supporter. So Jack, while you have been off gallivanting around, I can barely keep track of your travels, I've been sitting at home reading books like this one, The Homeschool Choice, Parents and the Privatization of Education. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a way of journeying with the mind, Jennifer. Well, it's actually an excellent book. It's by Kate Henley Averett. And she gets to the conclusion, she's following these uh, parents who who homeschool their kids for a whole bunch of different reasons. And I think that's part of her point, that we have too narrow of a conception of what this movement is. But she gets to the end and she really concludes that, you know, parents have been persuaded to accept the key tenets of neoliberalism as common sense. And I feel that way more and more these days, that especially with the kind of accelerant of the pandemic, that, you know, choice, the language of choice is absolutely everywhere. And that people like you and I who are still waving the flag for this kind of old timey institution seem, you know, like more and more out of step that we're, we're basically like banjo players or... Uh, banjo players have more skill than you and or I have, like, Jennifer. Like steampunk adherents. <laughs> <laughs> We're so cool. <laughs> I think that's a nice way of putting it. And, you know, it really is clear that there is a set of usually unstated assumptions and beliefs that shape the way we operate. Uh, in schools and around schools that shape our thinking about schools, that shape the way we talk about schools. And for me, the most pervasive and problematic and, and you know, always unstated one of those is the belief that schools are a private good, right? That the benefit accrues to the individual. And there is a simple way of pushing back against that, which is to say, then why on earth do all of us fund public schools with our tax dollars, right? So all of us who pay property taxes in local communities, and that includes renters because their rent is higher by virtue of the fact that whoever owns the property is paying property taxes on it, right? So all of us are contributing towards local schools. All of us who pay state taxes are contributing to schools statewide. And all of us who pay federal taxes are contributing to schools. Why is that? It's because there's a value that accrues to all of us in having public schools in our communities, in having them as public institutions, particularly now, today, as we've seen this continuing decline in public institutions, in support for public institutions, uh, a decline in civil society and in public life, vanishing public spaces, right? We still have 
99,000 public schools in this country. Um, we all benefit from the fact that young people not only come out of those schools literate and numerate, but also that they have social skills, that you know they have learned how to get along with each other in many cases, hopefully most cases, um, that you know they have in some cases learned how to be really active and engaged citizens. Um, you know, maybe that's many cases. Maybe it's most cases. It should be all cases. And there's not enough thinking about this idea of schools as something that we all have a stake in. And a big part of that is the fact that, you know, when we employ a consumer mentality, when we think about ourselves as shoppers, essentially, and that's exactly what choice asks us to do. And I'm actually no opponent of choice. I think choice can be really important and powerful in education. I think it, it really matters that a school have an identity, a mission, a purpose. I think it really matters that a kid feels like um, they fit at a school and that a family feels like a school is a good match for them. But that is absolutely in tension with the idea that we're actually all in this together and that these are actually a pillar of our community and not simply a mechanism for acquiring credentials that will allow us to get ahead in the world. And I think that you just made the author's point right there, right? That if even Jack Schneider is basically using this same language. Like, what? what's next that you're going to argue that your daughter would be better off being uh, educated by you because you'll do a better job than her teacher? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I, I think it is important to think about families like mine which do have the resources and kinds of cultural and social capital that they could bring to bear through homeschooling are probably more likely by finding some privileged school, um, some you know highly resourced school, some high status school that will fast track their kids for social and economic advantage. Um, that's absolutely something to be concerned about is the self-segregation of families like that and young people like that. But then it's absolutely critical to think about the other end, right? To think about all of the young people who historically really weren't served by the public schools. And we can think really specifically about students with disabilities. And there has been a lot of activism and a lot of victories over the decades in terms of winning a place for those young people in public schools. Um, and, you know, we can think beyond students with disabilities to think about, you know, black and brown children, for instance, low-income children, um, children from families where English is not the language spoken at home, right? All of these young people have rights today and have access today that they didn't have 20 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago. And that's not to say that we live in a perfectly equal educational ecosystem, right? We do not. Uh, our schools are not equal. And that's a result of the lack of political will that we all have uh, to create that kind of equality. But we're certainly closer than we will be if we move towards a system in which schools are allowed to say, you know what, you're actually really hard to educate. You're really expensive to educate. We're going to have to work a lot more in order to get you to where you deserve to be. That, that vision of the future, that terrifies me because 
if we say, well, this is going to be somebody else's responsibility, right? Somebody else can start a school to serve this kid. I think we end up in a society not only where the privileged have self-segregated, but also one where the rest of America is left to scramble for themselves and is effectively told, you know, you're not a part of the us anymore. Well, Jack, it just happens that the topic of this episode's In the Weeds segment that we do for our Patreon supporters is a particular vision of the future of schooling that's playing out right now in Tennessee. What if I told you that your daughter could get, wait for it, a patriotic education? <laughs> I, I really thought you were going to make a pun there with Patreon, but <laughs> but but yes, great. Let's, let's wrap her in the flag and move into the weeds and talk about that. <laughs> A patrionic education. There you go. So that only her entire education would consist solely of in the weeds segments. Right, as long as she makes her $2 a month contribution as a minimum. <laughs> if this interests you, all you have to do is head on over to patreon.com slash have you heard podcast. You'll see a list of all the cool extras you can get just by throwing a little cash our way each month. For example, we do a custom reading list. And on that list goes all the works and articles that we refer to in the course of our dizzying conversations. And Jack, of course... There are other ways that people can support the show. <laughs> like, for example, you can leave a wonderful review, as we heard at the top of the episode. Right. You could you could leave a real review uh, where you put your actual name. Uh, that That's great. That, those are good. Uh, as I've mentioned before, there are a sort of shocking number of shows called Have You Heard. It would be good if we were the top one when people search for us. Um, and I think ratings help with that, despite our discomfort with uh, writing about the problematic nature of ratings and then speaking out of the other side of our mouth and saying, you know, go on and do that. Um, so that that's one way to do it. Uh, another is by sharing the show with somebody who you think would enjoy it. Educators, feel free to teach the show in your classrooms. Um, as always, uh, we love hearing about that. So you can tag the show's Twitter handle, uh, at Have You Heard Pod. If you want any other information about the show, you can go to the website, have you heard podcast.com. That's it for us. If you want to join us into the weeds, we'll be heading back to the year 1776. I believe that was the year that the first charter school was founded. <laughs> if I had my, my fife and drum kit, Jennifer, I'd play us off. I'm Jennifer Berkshire. And I'm Jack Schneider. This is Have You Heard. <laughs>